0: All right, you can turn your Bibles to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verses 10 through 13 this morning will be our passage. The title of our message today is Why Should We Obey? And that is a a question that actually has a lot of different answers uh, within Christendom, which is very unfortunate. Motivation for obedience is something that is often misunderstood. Uh, There are denominations and churches, for example, that teach that you need to uh, obey in order to gain your salvation. Uh, There are some who teach that you need to obey to keep your salvation. There are some who teach that you need to obey in order to prove that you are uh, saved. And all of these uh, errant views of obedience and works actually have a low view of sin uh, I think that's kind of the 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 underlying basis of it, in spite of what they the the folks who believe these things may say and that they may seem super spiritual on the outside. actually they're teaching that your works have some kind of uh, influence. Over sin itself, and that is that is exactly contrary to what the scriptures teach. Uh, the scriptures do not teach that you can, through good works, gain eternal life. And when we understand sin and eternal life, you kind of see the, the ridiculous nature of this idea that we can earn God's uh, perfect righteousness through our works or that we can even keep our perfect righteousness that's given to us. That's what it takes to have eternal life, perfect righteousness. In the first century, Jesus said that, you, that your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees in order to have eternal life. That was, that the Pharisees were the ultimate standard of personal righteousness in the mind of the people who were listening to him. <laughs> That wasn't good enough, Jesus said. Nothing could be further from the truth of what the Scriptures say than saying you can earn your salvation through works, you can keep your salvation through works. Those are completely wrong ideas. God saves us in spite of our works. Uh, Which is, is what the Bible actually teaches. He did all of the work on the cross. He did all of the work all of the works Jesus accomplished on the cross in dying for our sins we simply trust in what he did in order to receive eternal life since he paid the penalty for sin we trust in what he did for us on the cross when we do that he gives us his righteousness that's the imputed righteousness is kind of the the theological Term for that when we trust in him. So that brings us right back to the to the original question: Why should we obey then, if it's not to earn salvation, keep salvation, or prove our salvation? Why do we, why do we obey? And I'll give you the answer now in the beginning, if you promise to listen all the way to the end. <laughs> so, we uh, we have a couple of different motivations for why we need to. Obey. One of them that we're going to see today, if we make it that far, is that we're going to be judged. We will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for how we've lived our lives as believers. That ought to get our attention. And secondly, that we will see today, we will see the, the absolute uh, greatness of God in the greatness of Jesus Christ. And that ought to, out of a sense of gratitude for how great He is and how lowly we are, and that He shows us favor and grace, that ought to motivate us to obedience. And today we'll look at what Revelation 22 has to say about these topics. And Of course, we are all the way down at the bottom, the last point of our uh, outline in the book of Revelation as I was rereading chapter 22 this morning i thought well we probably only have like two weeks maybe three weeks left in the book of revelation and that would assume that we make it all the way through today and that's not a guarantee so at any rate we are getting we are getting to the end of this book that is this incredible revelation of jesus christ this gives us as paul harvey used to say the rest of the story about who uh, Jesus is and what he's going to do in the world. We get into problems when we focus on uh, who Jesus is in the Old Testament, who who uh, the things that he was doing then, and, and if we only focus on that, we can get into problems. We will definitely get into problems if we only focus on what Jesus did during his earthly ministry. We will get off track from what we are supposed to be doing today. Uh, We get into trouble if we focus solely on what Jesus was doing in the book of Acts and think that that is exactly what we are to be doing today. Uh, That manifests itself in Pentecostalism, for example. That's, That's an issue. We get a a full understanding and a correct view of Christ when we take into consideration who he is across the broad spectrum of the Bible. That's why a lot of pastors will say that they endeavor to teach the whole counsel of God, a complete understanding of who Jesus is. And we cannot have a complete understanding of who Jesus is unless we understand The book of Revelation and apply it to everything. We also, by the way, can get into trouble if we only look at Revelation and we see Jesus as being as as he is depicted in Revelation 19. If that's our only view of who Jesus is, we'll come away with a skewed view of Christ and, and who he is and what he does and the fact that oh yes, he actually does love us. He does care for us. He did die for our sins after all and he's functioning as our high priest today. We need a we need a balanced view of who Jesus is and the book of Revelation adds to our balanced view of who he is. And so the the book of Revelation it sets out this basic timeline of the end times, if you will. Uh, There will be a rapture of the church uh, that you could equate to Revelation chapter 4 if you want to make Revelation chronological, which I in large measure believe that it is. It's chronological with some breaks in the action we saw. Uh, The rapture of the church would happen after the messages to the churches before the tribulation begins. That's the way it's laid out. John is called to heaven in Revelation 4. Tribulation begins in Revelation chapter 6. And as as we've seen, seal, trumpet, and bold judgments constitute the seven years of the tribulation, and then Christ comes again at the end of that seven years. Revelation 19 establishes a kingdom on the earth for 1,000 years, And then at the end of the thousand years, we get to where we are today in our study, have been for several weeks with the eternal state. After the kingdom, after sin and death, sin and all its consequences essentially are dealt with at the great white throne judgment, then we can be ushered into this new heavens and new earth, new creation of God where we will live with him for eternity in perfect fellowship. So last week we we looked at why why worship God. Kind of uh, similar titles actually. Uh, worship and obedience are very very closely connected concepts. Actually, we we uh, obey God because He's greater than we are. There's another, there's another one. We to add a third reason why we ought to obey. He's greater than we are. And when we subject ourselves to him and to his word, essentially do what he says, that is a sign of worship, individual worship. Uh, worship of God as an individual. We, we do corporate worship here in church. That's different from our, from our, daily, our daily worship of God. But we saw uh, the, the words that are spoken here are faithful and true. We saw that this, uh, this closing section is very closely tied to the beginning of the book of Revelation where John was going to lay out the things that he was going to say. Then he said them in chapters 2 through uh, here in 22. And now he's essentially saying again what he's said. And we get a whole a whole host of applications from that that you can review from the message last week, if you would like. Uh, when is this going to take place? When are these events going to take place? Uh, the Verse 6 of Revelation 22, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. We looked at the language of that. And saw essentially that what it's saying is this is the next event on the horizon. And we'll look at that uh, some more today. And then we looked at this idea of worship. Since John here worships the angel, obviously that was the wrong thing to do. Second time that, that John did that, has done that in this book of Revelation, uh, giving us an indication of how incredible. The the things that he was seeing were, uh, but nevertheless, uh, it's still a good example of what worship is. It's submission. He is submitting to the angel. He's falling down before this angel, recognizing—or falsely, in this case—recognizing that the angel is greater than he is. The angel corrects him, says, "No, I'm not greater than you are. Stand up, worship God. He is the one who is great and worthy of." worship and so today and why should we obey we will see the report the reward and the reason notice revelation 22 and verse 10 it says and he said to me do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near let the one who does wrong still do wrong And the one who is filthy, still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous, still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy, still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So we begin with the report. Notice again, uh, verses... 10 and 11, and he said to me, you see that little star that's uh, next to the word said there? That If you've ever noticed in the NASB, you see that quite a bit next to verbs. It's, uh, it is, that is an indication that this verb is actually present tense, even though it reads as kind of past tense in English. Literally, it says, and he was saying to me, emphasizing again that, th- that this is happening. John is reporting these things that are happening to him now. And we don't really do that in English so much. So they just (laughs) put that little star there to make that indication. If you ever see that in your Bible, that's what that means. Uh, And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Do not seal up the book. This is a very different message to uh, even what we saw earlier in the book of Revelation, and certainly different from what was said to the prophet Daniel. There is, there's a close tie between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation that we've seen throughout our study here. Daniel is kind of, uh, well, you actually are seeing some houses being built around here again. That's kind of encouraging. Where you drive by a house and you see the, the frame is up on the foundation, just the two by fours and, and all of that's going in. That's the book of Daniel. Gives a nice framework for the end times. Uh, and then you drive by that house a couple weeks later and the roof is on, the siding is on, the windows are in, it's painted, the driveway is uh, is concreted in, and the people are just about ready to move into the house. That's Revelation. Revelation really puts the finishing touches on the end times and gives us a complete picture, or at least the complete picture that God wants us to have. Some things He doesn't want us to know about the future. For example, Revelation 10.4. If you remember back to that, uh, that was one of our breaks in the, in the action where we're getting more information about things that have just happened and things that will happen uh, later later in the book of Revelation. Revelation 10.4 says, When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Some things uh, God doesn't want us to know. He only wanted John to know that information for whatever reason, and you know, uh, he's God. He can do that. Uh, And that's a good lesson for us in a lot of different areas. Uh, some people, God wants to be incredibly gifted with uh, speaking, teaching, doing uh, good work. Some people are just absolutely gifted with evangelism, able to strike up a conversation with any person at any time and turn it around and lead them to the Lord. We, we had a pastor at, a, at an older or a church that we used to attend, who said he always he always walked around with uh, tracks, of course, and, and any time somebody would ask him for directions, he knew exactly, uh, he had his line all worked out. Uh, do, you know, do you know how to get to so-and-so? Uh, no, I have no idea how to get there, but I know how to get to heaven. And trusting in the Lord, you know, this kind of, there are people who are just absolutely gifted. In that regard, because God can, He can dole out gifts the way that He that He wants to, and this shouldn't cause us to be jealous or that kind of thing. It ought to motivate you to find out what your gift is and use it to the best of your ability. We shouldn't be trying to uh, make Revelation ten four our our verse that oh, I'm going to find out what the seven peals of thunder said, and if I can't find it in the Bible, I'm just going to make it up. That's that's a problem. You don't want to do that, uh, for whatever reason. God wanted John to hear that, and He didn't want us to know what it was. Uh, Daniel, chapter eight. Some of the things that he uh, heard, in fact, were to be sealed up and kind of uh, brought to light later, if you will. Daniel eight twenty six. The vision of the, uh, it says the vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. So uh, what exactly did that mean? Daniel wrote it down. I mean, we have it here. I think that is uh, an indication that Daniel wasn't to be uh, making that his life 's mission to to go around the world and spread this truth uh instead record it it will be in the bible when other things take place this is going to make more sense to people uh same same idea in daniel 12:4 but as for you daniel conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase that we could spend a whole week talking about exactly what that what that means but at any rate uh, the book of Daniel uh, is obviously in the scriptures. It's here for us to read now. At the time, Daniel was told to not, uh, not spread, these, spread these things around. God would take care of making this message known more. Now, here in the end of the book of Revelation, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Make the message known, John. Uh, Recorded here. Make sure that people know about this truth. And the same is true for us as well. You know, as uh, we kind of mentioned last week a little bit, the book of Revelation. People don't in Christendom don't like to talk about Revelation. Uh, a lot of times, uh, there's differences of opinion. We don't want to offend anyone. We talked about kind of. Uh, Maybe the real reason is that it talks about sin and its judgment, so the modern church doesn't like to talk about that too much. Uh, But we here are commanded to make these things known. We get a complete understanding of Christ. We understand better things that are going on in the world. When we see the world rushing headlong towards one world government, abolishing borders, uh, doing these kinds of these kinds of things, tearing down Western society so that it can be replaced with a different uh, form uh, we know we know exactly what 's happening it's god 's plan for this world uh, leading up to him restoring all things as we see him doing here in revelation it 's not god's plan that the world would be a terrible place, but Nevertheless, he's telling us in Revelation how events that are going to take place for him to restore all things. And we need to make this message known. And notice what he says there. What is to be made known? Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Even the individual words are important. We can take away from this. Individual words of the Bible are important. In fact, I think you can make the case that even the individual letters and these kinds of things are important. And we make that case from Matthew chapter 5. In verse 17, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. And when he says that, uh, we may have in our minds the law. The Ten Commandments, the, the, the law given to Israel. And that's not, a, that's not a good understanding of that phrase. When he says law or the prophets, he means the Bible. The, the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. Do not think that I came to abolish the Bible, Jesus is saying. I'm not, I didn't come here to throw out the Bible and start with something new. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, or as I believe the, the King James Version says, jot or tittle. That's where that phrase comes from. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. God's word is true, as Mike said this morning in Ezekiel. The things that he says are going to happen will happen nothing in the scriptures is not going to happen that is promised to happen again from the law until all is abolished there at the end when he says law he's referring to the scriptures and incidentally that smallest letter the uh the jot or tittle that's uh that is an indication that everything in the scriptures is important uh all of the words, all of the the concepts that are being transmitted to us through by the Holy Spirit to these human authors recorded for us in the Scriptures. All of that is important. That's why we believe in the verbal plenary inscri- uh, inspiration of the, the original <laughs> manuscripts. God was uh, working through the Holy Spirit for the individual authors when they put. Uh, quill to papyrus, <laughs> or pen to paper in, in our modern language. They were doing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And now today, of course, we have uh, translations and, and based on manuscripts and these kinds of things. Our English Bibles are the Word of God. They are reliable for us to understand the truths that God uh, transmits to us. When, when Jesus here talks about the smallest letter or stroke, he's kind of referring to, in the Hebrew language, of course, that's very intricate and this kind of thing, and later, actually, and it's only consonants in the original Hebrew. When, when the authors of Hebrew were writing, they were writing only consonants onto the, the, uh, whatever they were inscribing it to. The vowels were actually added later. Uh, it's just the way the Hebrew language works. It's a very verbal language, so they only needed the consonants, and if you know how to read it, you know what is being spoken there from the context and these kinds of, these kinds of things. And so, uh, later in Jewish history, if you will, uh, some people came along, the, the Masoretes, as they're known, the Masoretic text that they was worked on from about A.D. 500 to 1,000, so about 500 to 1,000 years later, and, and that's what our most of our English Bibles are based on, the Masoretic text. Uh, they're made to read a little bit less messianic than it was originally composed. Now, why in the world would they do that, you may ask yourself. Well, they're uh, Jewish Uh, scholars, kind of their rabbis of the day, they see that some of these passages, well, that sounds a lot like that guy Jesus that those Christians (laughs) worship that we didn't like. Remember, we sent him to the cross. We better massage this passage a little bit to read a little bit less messianic. And that's why when we see the, the Old Testament quoted many times in the New Testament and then if you flip back to that passage and read it as it is in your Old Testament it's a little bit different sometimes that's the difference between the uh, Septuagint that is used I know this is getting kind of into the weeds but they use the Septuagint uh, which is a Greek translation of the Bible in the New Testament your Old Testament about 99% chance your Old Testament in your Bible is based on the Masoretic text Septuagint 200 B.C. or so. 200 years before Christ. Masoretic text, about 1,000 years after Christ. Septuagint, based on older manuscripts, before Christ came. They had no reason to change passages to be less messianic, if you will. Jewish scholars, 500 to 1,000 years after Christ, had a pretty good reason to make passages seem less messianic than they actually are. I am no expert on this topic. There is an expert on this topic who wrote a book about it. Dr. Michael Rydelnik, I would highly recommend that, The Great Messianic Hope. He wrote an entire book on this topic and goes through uh, many, if not all, of the passages where this kind of thing happened. All of that to say, the individual words are very, very important. And God is here saying this through the angel to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the words are very, very important. And in fact, we're going to see that the prophecy is important because it's a motivation for godliness. Everywhere that Christ's second coming and the rapture is talked about is ultimately a motivation for you to obey God in His Word. It's not so you can impress your friends or get in arguments with Reformed people or whatever who think, oh, this is all all in the past, it's already happened. Oh, yeah? Well, what about... Now It's to motivate you to live for the Lord today. And so how should we interpret this? I, you already know the answer to that. Consistent literal, literal grammatical interpretation. Take it for what it's worth. The same way that when you receive a letter from the IRS, you read that, you take the words as they are on the page, you don't try to cast it off on your neighbor. Oh, my neighbor owes $10,000. That's not me. I don't, you don't do that. You read it as it is presented to you. The Bible is the same, the same way. Now, what in the world is, where does verse 11 come from? Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Is God suddenly, laissez-faire? And he doesn't care what we're what we're doing. Of course not. There's a mu- there's a much better uh, explanation for this verse. Essentially, it's saying that people are going to carry on uh, living their life the way that they see fit, in spite of the fact that God's words are true, and you you ought not to seal up the prophecy of this book. The world is going to carry on, essentially, until it doesn't. And there's a another implication to this, and that is that uh, people have a decision to make. But notice uh, Jesus said something kind of similar in Luke 17 and verse 26 when he is speaking about the end times. He says, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. We've talked about this before in the past. Noah wasn't just building the ark for a hundred years. He was also a preacher of righteousness, Peter says. So during that time, I'm sure he got a lot of questions. What are you doing? Why are you building this giant ship? Oh, I'm so glad that you asked. Well, I'll tell you why. God's going to judge this world and uh, you'd better trust in him. In fact, I've got room for you on this giant ship. You can come with us if you would like and you can be rescued from the flood that is about to come. Okay, Noah, whatever you say. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and then they probably realized that they had made the same the wrong decision. Notice I that phrase as it happened just in the days of Noah. What what happened after the flood? Uh there was a sign in the sky, a rainbow. Very appropriate that we would be to this particular passage and this time of month. Uh, and if you didn't realize, it's Pride Month. Uh, if you're living under a rock or have just come from the UP or something for the last three weeks and don't realize that this is being rammed, crammed, and jammed down your throat every moment of the day. Uh, it's interesting that they would choose the rainbow flag for this has been pointed out. Satan is in charge of those kinds of efforts. Uh, There's no other way to put it. Uh, And Satan cannot create anything. He he tries to uh, copy what God is doing, if you will. He uses the things of God and he twists them to his own for his own uses, his own advantage. Satan knows the Bible better than I do, better than any of you do, probably better than any other person on this earth. He quotes it to Jesus as he is tempting him, but he twists it just a little bit to to try to get Jesus to worship him instead of God. Here, in our day and age, the rainbow is being used as a sign of the... Just complete degradation and uh, rejection of God and his created order. That's essentially what it comes down to. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. I'm not saying it's tomorrow. I'm saying we are headed in that direction, and it's probably going to get a whole lot worse uh, in the meantime, before Christ comes again he Satan is an imitator he doesn 't create he copies God and twists it to his own uh, for his own need we 're living in the days of Noah. Noah preached for a hundred years, maybe it 'll be another hundred years uh, that God is long suffering so that people can be saved and so uh All that to say, there were different reactions to Noah's message. Most of them, if not all of them, rejected his message and carried on with their lives. This is the same idea that is being uh, portrayed here. Some are going to completely outright reject the message, John. Uh, The one who is filthy, still be filthy. We have plenty of that uh, going on in the world today. Uh, Some are going to try to earn their righteousness is, I believe, the implication there. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. Uh, The Bible, John, he is the author of Believe. If there is one word that you would, if you uh, wanted to attach one word to every book of the Bible, the Gospel of John would be Believe. That's what it's all about. There isn't the the word "repent" does not appear a single time in the Gospel of John. The word "believe" appears a hundred times. Trust in Christ for eternal life. You cannot earn it through your righteousness. Some are going to reject John's message and continue down the path of works. Some are going to obey some will be holy. You keep proclaiming the message. It is not our responsibility to save people. It is our responsibility to give the truth. God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, convicts people. You are not, uh, sometimes you can be the tool of the Holy Spirit to convict someone, but it isn't up to you to get that person saved. Let God handle that. You just be obedient. And, uh, and as an application to this, for this passage to us, don't seal up the words of the Bible because, oh, that person is so terrible, they'll never get saved. Just keep giving them the truth. And make sure you're giving them the truth. Some are going to reject it outright. Some are going to continue down their path of, of works-based salvation. Some are actually going to listen and believe, and obey. We just need to uh, be obedient and realize that Christ is coming again. And oh, by the way, notice verse 12. We see that in the reward. That even though people are going to continue on their merry way, that doesn't change the fact that Jesus is coming again. Just like uh, people eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage in Noah's day didn't change the fact that one day the judgment was going to come. Same idea here in Revelation. Revelation twenty-two twelve. 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. There's that word again, behold. That starts off, verse 12, that's a that's a command, it's an imperative. Behold, pay attention, listen to this. Now something important is about to be said. I am coming quickly. And this, this word is used, I think it was, uh, I think behold was used, well, John uses it more than anybody else. But we'll put it that way. I don't remember exactly how many times. It's in the New Testament. John uses it more than anybody else. He uses that word 29 times in all uh, five of the books of the Bible that he wrote. 25 of them are in the book of Revelation. So Revelation, more than any other book, uses this com- this word, and it's always a command. Pay attention. Listen to this. Behold, 25 times in the book of revelation it. and when you look at those passages where it's used you get a, a great idea of what the book of revelation is all about and like i mentioned last time i don't want us to study revelation for uh nigh on two years and not know what the book of revelation is about so here we go revelation 1 7 behold he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. There's the, our first one. This book is about Jesus coming again. Chapters 2 and 3, it, uh, messages to the churches. We see the word behold used several times. Every time it is used, it's used uh, in, a, in a command to obey. To the churches, that's you and to me. Uh, Revelation 5.5, 5, Behold, the Lamb is the one who is able to open this scroll. Jesus is the one who is uh, opening the scroll, bringing this judgment upon the earth in the future tribulation. We see it used in Revelation 6-9 through uh, 9 about the impending judgments of the tribulation particularly the beginning judgments. Behold, pay attention to this. There's going to come a rider on a white horse. He's going to conquer nations without uh, firing a shot, if you will. He's going to bring people, nations, under his sphere of influence. That's what kicks off the, the tribulation period. The first seal. That has not happened yet. That will happen in the future. Tribulation is... Completely future. Uh, one day it will happen. Revelation twelve three. Behold, Satan and this red dra- vision of the red dragon that we saw. Satan in his battle against God's plan and purpose to save the world, essentially through the nation of Israel and Jesus Christ in particular. Satan is at war with that. We need to pay attention to that. Revelation sixteen. 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Behold, you ought to be obeying God's Word. He can come at any time. Revelation 19.11 Behold, Christ is coming again at the end of the tribulation before the kingdom begins. Revelation 21.3, behold, God will live with mankind after the tribulation, after the kingdom period. In the eternal state, we will be living in perfect fellowship with God. How ought that to affect us today? Revelation 21.5, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. We need to have faith in the fact that God's word is faithful and true, and he's going to accomplish his purpose. Behold, I am coming quickly, verse 12 says, and my reward is with me. Here's that uh, I'm coming quickly. Again, we get that phrase, Texas. This time uh, is used the adverb form. We talked about that last time. Uh, it's describing how he is he is going to come. This is the theme of the book. It is it is next on the on the timeline, if you will. And when it happens, it's going to happen quickly. But it is the next event. It is imminent. Uh, the the beginning of these judgments is. Important. The rapture is imminent. It is the next event to take place, uh, as we see in the messages to the churches. So, this kind of language, behold, I am coming quickly, uh, that wasn't the case for Daniel back here in the Old Testament times. He was living in a different dispensation, if you will. A whole lot had to happen before this tribulation period could happen from Daniel's perspective when he was writing. Daniel didn't have all of those details. He didn't have exact details about the coming of Christ to the earth, how his coming to the earth to go to the cross and his coming to the earth to establish his kingdom, that those are two separate events. That may not have been perfectly clear to Daniel. Uh, it's speculation. We don't know exactly everything that Daniel knew. We know exactly what God wanted him to record in his book, but we, didn't, we don't know exactly everything that he knew about the fact that these are two separate advents of Christ. He would come in his first advent uh, to die for the sins of the world. He will come in his second advent to establish his kingdom on the earth. Most Jewish people would have thought this was all one, this and this was one coming of the Lord, if you will. Jesus comes uh, to the earth in his earthly ministry. And one of his major teaching points was that, no, that's not, that's not the case. Uh, I'm not going to establish my kingdom on the earth now because you are going to reject me. And I'm going to have to die for the sins of the world And then I will come again. And oh, by the way, in the meantime, there's going to be about 2000 years known as the church age. Uh, And when the church age comes to an end, then you will know that it is here. The time is, is very near. And so when is the church age going to come to an end? That's a great question. And nobody has the answer to that. If they tell you that they have an answer to you, they are either sadly misinformed and you ought to disregard what they are saying or they are purposefully trying to deceive you to sell survival food or space blankets uh, and this kind of thing. They're trying to make money off of you, sell a book maybe, lots of books. They're, They're purposefully misleading you because we do not know when it will end. It could end in five seconds. It could end in 5,000 years. Our mandate is to be faithful during this time. Nevertheless, it is imminent. It could happen at any time that Christ ends the church age by rapturing us to heaven, and then sometime subsequent to that, personally, I think it's very quickly after that, and defined very quickly, yeah, uh, I don't know, soon. <laughs> Not a number of years, as you may hear. I don't agree with that. I think it will be pretty soon after the rapture, the tribulation uh, will begin with the seal judgments. And so that's why John can say uh, that he's coming quickly. When he comes, it will happen fast. But it is also next on the horizon. This tribulation and these events, Christ coming to the earth and establishing all of this, if you just think of the tribulation and all of this as one set of events, it's next. That is, everything that is, needs to happen for, that, for these events to take place has happened uh I guess, excluding the rapture of the church, which is a, a very unique event in history uh so the here's a this is to scale uh lengths of the dispensations, I didn't name the dispensations for you, but the time in the garden, yeah, we don't it's probably infinitesimally small. <laughs> I had to put something on there uh for you to be able to see that. Uh, probably didn't last very long before they sinned. That's known as the dispensation of innocence by scholars. There's a time of conscience between uh, kind of the exclusion from the garden until the flood came, 1,665 years on the basis of the timeline presented in the Bible, which I think is accurate. And then there's a time of government uh, when... Uh, God gave to Noah that that there needs to be a punishment for the shedding of blood until He made the promise to Abraham. That's about uh, 106 years, and then the time of promise from the time of Abraham until Israel is is, is receiving the law. That's about 796 years. The time that Israel receives the law until the church is established 1,479 years. And now I made this a couple of years ago, so I'm not sure uh, what this number should be right now off the top of my head. But the church has been going for almost 2,000 years. That, the, the church dispensation of the church, if you will, is the longest dispensation of, of any of them. That is a great indication to us of God's, Uh, long-suffering his patience his desire for all people to trust in him and that continues on today and then that will come to an end with the rapture of the church and then the, the tribulation this little tiny thing right here seven years of tribulation a thousand years of kingdom look at that the church ages twice as long as even the kingdom period and then here's the eternal state is down here it just goes forever Forever is a, is a very long time. If you didn't realize that already. So when he's saying that he's coming quickly, he means that it's next. And when it happens, it will be happen rapidly. Notice also that his reward is with him. When he comes again, uh, his reward is with him. When he comes again for us, at the rapture of the church, his reward is with him. That is what he is, is referring to specifically here, is the judgment seat of Christ. We face the fact that we are essentially going to have a final exam, if you will, except we're not going to have to answer questions uh, our, our answers to the questions that God is asking us today are going to be read back to us. And we're going to be given a reward based upon our faithfulness as believers. And we can suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't, we don't, I don't want us to have a, a view that we're going to be punished at the judgment seat of Christ, that somehow God is going. Oh, you're going to pay for that later. You you know you might hear uh, unbelievers or believers even flippantly say that about some sin. Oh, you're going to pay for that one later. Uh, well, as a believer, no, my sin has been paid for at the cross of Christ. Praise the Lord. Uh, but I can definitely suffer loss because of sin in my life at the judgment seat of Christ. And these things are going to be made known to us at this time. And we will receive a reward, but we can also not receive a full reward. And we'll see that from some of our passages here. And the fact of the matter is that all people face the judgment of God at one time or another. I believe that this verse 12 is specifically speaking to believers and saying that we face the judgment seat of Christ. Christ is coming with his reward. Be obedient today so that you can receive a full reward. And here's our <laughs> judgment seat of Christ slide that is packed with information that you probably can't see from where you're sitting. But nevertheless, it is for believers. The judgment seat of Christ is only for Believers it is not for unbelievers. it is for you and for me who have trusted in Christ. Every one of us faces this judgment, Romans 14,10 through 12. 1 Corinthians 3:10 through 15. a wonderful passage. 1 Corinthians uh, is an incredible book of the Bible that addresses so many issues in the church today, uh, not just in Paul's time, but it is very relevant for us today. And he lays out very clearly that every believer faces judgment. Every believer will ultimately be saved, is saved, and will be saved. But you still, you face judgment. According to the grace of God, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3.10, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will testify, test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Revelation 3.12, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. If any man's work, verse 15 of First Corinthians 3, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So, uh, The the judgment seat of Christ has been compared to a to a graduation ceremony. Some people, the valedictorian, is very happy. He's very happy with himself or herself. I did it. I studied harder than anybody. I did better than anybody, and I'm receiving this great reward. And then there's the other kid who's sitting there. Uh, I didn't study. I had a lot of fun during uh, school, but I didn't study, and I'm not getting a reward, but I made it through by the skin of my teeth. There's there's a parallel there with people getting to heaven. Yes, you're glad that that is over. You made it to the next uh, thing, but yeah, I probably could have done better. And uh, <laughs> I can assure you that your sense of... of Uh, regret will be much greater than your graduation ceremony from high school when you're standing before the Lord of the universe uh, and giving an account for how you have lived. It is a determination of reward only, the judgment seat of Christ. It is not a time for you to be punished, uh, but you can lose Reward. John says, Second John 8, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Not punishment, reward. Sin has been paid for completely. That's why the guy in 1 Corinthians 3.15 is making it through, but as through fire, because sin has already been taken care of. It's not a determination of Punishment. Romans 5 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace through God in our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, so it will be a time of reward only, not a time of punishment. It is only for believers. There are several crowns, specific crowns that are mentioned for specific purposes that you could uh, potentially receive. This is, these are the ones mentioned in Scripture. It's not that these are the only ones. Uh, nevertheless, we've talked about those in the past. We won't do it today. Uh, but every person, not just believers, faces judgment before God. Believers, judgment seat of Christ, I believe shortly after the rapture, that's when we'll all be there together. Uh, there's also in Ezekiel 20, uh, what's what I call or it, the scriptures refer to the believers passing under the rod. That's for Israel. At the close of the tribulation, they will, the nation of Israel will be judged. I believe they will be resurrected. All Jewish people will be resurrected at that time. Those who uh, pass the test, those who've believed in God, Will enter into the kingdom. Those who do not will not pass under the rod. They will be excluded from the kingdom. Uh, sheep and goat, Gentiles. Uh, sheep and goat judgment. Matthew twenty-five. A judgment of Gentile people who survive to the end of the tribulation. Will they enter into the kingdom? Well, they're going to stand before Christ and and give an account for. Uh the way that they have lived. Uh, I always like to point out that God separates the sheep and the goats before he starts talking to them. He knows who has believed and the sheep are going to be ushered into the kingdom. The goats are going to be pointed out how they didn't match up. They didn't believe. And it's evident in the way that they lived. Therefore, they'll be excluded from the kingdom. And then finally, we have seen in Revelation Uh, that everybody else is going to be raised at the end of the kingdom period, judged at the great white throne judgment, unbelievers, and they will be cast into the lake of fire, not because their works don't match up, but because they didn't believe and therefore the only thing they have to rely upon is their works and they will not pass the test. All people face judgment before God. And notice the reason uh, why we should obey is given in verse 13. One of the reasons anyway. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The reason why Jesus Christ can judge, the reason why he can give reward uh the reason why these things are happening is because he is the alpha and the omega the first and the last the beginning and the end and we'll move through these kind of quickly and maybe review them again next time first off he is the alpha and the omega of course alpha and omega are the first and last letter of the greek uh, alphabet that is you that is that this book was originally written in we've seen this phrase other times and essentially what jesus is using uh here is what is known as a mirrorism when he says these things i'm the alpha and the omega and he means everything else in between he's all the letters in fact he's all the letters and all the combinations of the letters he is the word that's why it says that we read that in our scripture reading this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When the Jehovah's Witness show up at your door, they'll go to that verse and say, see, my Bible doesn't say that. It says something different. Their Bible is wrong. (laughs) Jesus was the Word, as testified by verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is eternal God, and He is the Word. That gives us a, a wonderful uh, picture of what we ought to think of God's Word when we're studying it. It's also interesting to note here that it says, I am, uh I am the Alpha and the Omega. Uh one interesting <laughs> kind of you can't prove a point by what's not there, at least you're not supposed to, but I'm gonna go ahead and do it this time anyway. Uh that, that it just uses the phrase or the word ego here, I am, as opposed to uh, Jesus' statements of deity in the Gospel of John, where he says, ego, I me, I am, I am, is what he uses there in the Gospel of John, a clear claim to deity. Don't let anybody tell you Jesus never claimed to be God. He most certainly did. It's throughout the Gospel of John. But here, he again is making claim uh, claims to deity, if you will, in a different way. Here, saying he is... The first, or the Alpha and the Omega, he begins by, I am the Word, just like it says in the Gospel of John. I am the first and the last, he says. The Protos and Eschatos are the Greek terms there, and an indication that Jesus is the, the plan from the beginning to the end. Everything that is taking place in the world is. Focused on Christ. It has been from the beginning. In fact, before the beginning, God had a plan to make all things new again. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and He solved our problem through the person of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.4, "...just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love." It says in uh, Ephesians 1.4, Colossians 1.18, He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in In heaven, Jesus is God's plan A to solve the problems of the world. And that's why he here states that he's the first and the last. And he's also the beginning and the end. The arche and the telos is the the Greek terms there. He is uh, essentially the chief fulfiller of all things. Just like it says in Hebrews 12 and verse 1 Uh, Notice the the tie-in between the faithful people, Hebrews 11, the great hall of fame of faith, listing all the people who trusted in God and were obedient in their lives. The author of Hebrews sums it up like this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. That, it's a very similar phraseology to what we have here in Revelation, Arche and Telos, very, almost identical phraseology translated differently here. The author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So why why should we obey? The author of Hebrews says, consider Christ. Look at Christ, who was God in human flesh and laid it down for you and for me. So what ought to be our attitude towards him it ought to be of course one of obedience so obey the lord because you're going to stand before him in judgment and obey the lord because he is the alpha and the omega the first and the last and the beginning and the end and may we be found faithful when he comes again for us let's go to him in prayer Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Revelation and the incredible truths that are found in this ancient text that are still so perfectly relevant for us today. I just pray that that we would be found faithful when you come again for us. And may we, moment by moment, trust in you and your word and the Holy Spirit who indwells us to guide us into truth. And to lead us into a path of righteousness. I just thank you and praise you for that work in our lives. And may we always endeavor to uh, be faithful to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.